KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, the left has hated J. Edgar Hoover for a hundred years. Ever since the Palmer raids of 1919, the attacks on radicals that began his career. Now there's a terrific new biography of Hoover. It's called G-Man, and the author is Beverly Gage. We'll speak with her later in the hour. Also, the fight against air pollution in the port communities of Los Angeles, where 300,000 people, mostly Latino, live next door to oil refineries, chemical facilities, and one of the largest oil fields in the nation. For decades, they've been fighting for basic rights and a cleaner environment. Eliza Moreno has that story. But first, DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, has allowed children who grew up in the United States who had been brought to this country by undocumented parents to stay in the country legally and to avoid deportation. That policy was adopted in 2012. But if you came to the U.S. after 2007, you do not qualify for DACA. And those kids are now graduating from high school and going to college. The class of young immigrants who grew up in the United States but are not eligible for DACA is expanding at the rate of about 100,000 people every year. They can go to college in California. California offers low in-state tuition to undocumented students, but they haven't been able to get jobs on campus or elsewhere because federal law has been interpreted as prohibiting the hiring of undocumented people. But now some of the nation's top legal scholars are arguing that the law does not apply to states and that the University of California can hire undocumented students, including those who don't qualify for DACA, as research and teaching assistants and paid interns and other jobs. One of those legal scholars is Ahilan Arulanantham. He's co-director of the Center for Immigration Law and Policy at UCLA Law School. He's argued three times before the Supreme Court, most recently in 2021, on behalf of Muslim Americans who were targeted by the federal government for surveillance because of their religion. We talked about it here. Ahilan, welcome back. Always great to be with you, John. Well, tell us about the argument you and others have recently made to the University of California president. The argument is just that the, the law that prohibits the hiring of undocumented people, it's a 1986 law called IRCA, the Immigration Reform and Control Act, that law says its prohibition applies to individuals or other entities. And then it defines entities specifically through an amendment that happened in 1996 to specify that it includes the branches of the federal government. And it does not say that it applies to state governments. And that omission really matters because there's a line of Supreme Court cases going back to before IRCA was enacted and lots and lots of cases on the subject that say that when Congress wants to regulate the states as states, not just regulating private conduct that takes place in a state, but when they want to regulate a state government, it has to do it explicitly. And that's out of deference to comedy and federalism and principles that I'm sure your audience will be very familiar with, in which the Supreme Court has paid a lot of deference to at different points over the years. Comity, C-O-M-I-T-Y, <laughs> not deference to comedy, however comical sometimes this may seem. That's exactly right. 
So the University of California, I read all 10 campuses is the third largest employer in the state. So this really matters. It does. And it, it matters a great deal to, as you said in the introduction, the tens of thousands of students now who have a right to public education. They have a right to go to college. As you say, California has made college affordable uh, for some of them. So then all these opportunities made available to these students uh, and yet they cannot finish particularly their graduate studies because in many cases graduate studies require some form of employment in the in the context of training you've got teachers have to do a you know practical component obviously doctors and many uh, law students i know this from personal experience go and get jobs in the summer working for uh, law firms uh, nonprofits judges uh, government officials and all of those are not open to uh, this set of people unless the state of California actually is open to them uh, as a potential employer. So our basic idea is you should, you know, the state of California should adopt this, hire the best person for the job. In many cases, that best person, that best student will be an undocumented student. And that's another opportunity the University of California should make available to this set of people. Now, I understand that you checked your reasoning about this law with other scholars in the field. And what did they tell you? Yes, we did. So this is not the way people have read the law for 30 years. So, you know, when we came across the idea, even once we did our own research and thought we were probably right, you know, we realized this is this is uh, going to be news to people. So we we had multiple listening sessions with some of the really the most prominent uh, scholars of immigration law, constitutional law, and particularly immigration federalism, which is the sub area of um, where state policy concerning immigration is possible. I mean, they, they have lots of sort of general comments on the argument and very detailed comments uh, allowed us to refine it in various different ways. But ultimately, nobody said, oh, you're wrong because of this provision or that case or some other thing that you've missed. And in the end, actually, now I think it's 29 scholars, uh, including the people who were in these listening sessions, have signed a letter endorsing our legal reasoning uh, that we have provided to the UC along with the underlying legal memo, which is an extensive, lengthy document describing lots and lots of case law uh, and, and a close analysis of the text of the statute as well. And I understand that the group presenting this argument to the president's office included students as well as legal authorities. Tell us about that. Yes, I mean, the, our interest in the idea actually came first from when we started this new Center for Immigration Law and Policy now uh, a year and a half ago at UCLA. We were put in touch with undocumented students who were describing this exact problem and telling us that in some cases they had job offers on the table from professors. Uh, so they, they know the professor said, you are the person who I want to hire to be my research assistant on this book or to be the, the teaching assistant for this class. And they couldn't take the offer uh, because they were undocumented. And so actually the, the demand for this first came from the set of students. Then we told them, we think we had this idea. We went back and researched for about a year actually almost and then came back to them and said, hey, we, we think we're, uh, we have this idea. Um, so yes, yeah, so, so it's actually been a student campaign that was launched uh, after we told them that we did potentially have a solution to the problem that they had told us about, uh, you know, even several months before that. 
So yes, several students have now presented this to the regents of the University of California. They did that just last week. Um, I wasn't there, unfortunately, but my understanding is it was you know, very compelling. I mean, I've met these students. Um, Jeffrey uh, Umanyam uh, Muniz, I think, was the, the student who was speaking this time. Uh, Paralia Maya, um, Abraham Cruz Hernandez, uh, Carlos Alarcón. These are the, the, the some of the student leaders from this. They're incredibly impressive people. And they're just very articulate, really smart, obviously really good students. And I think are very good at articulating the basic demand, which is just, I want to have equal educational opportunities. You told me I could come to the school. You have all these services available to undocumented students. And yet now I'm hitting a glass ceiling. There's an obvious question here. You say this law has been in effect for 30 years. How come you only figured this out now? I mean, I went and looked <laughs> up the law, 8 U.S. Code, paragraph 1324A. It says it applies to a person or any branch of the federal government. That's pretty clear. I know. I know. It's a little embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> I guess I would just say two things on this. You know, law is funny. And sometimes everybody assumes something and and nobody kind of really looks carefully until they do. And you know, lot, lots of things have been like that. I mean, DACA, uh, the, the DREAM Act was introduced in the year 2000 um, first. Uh, the idea for DACA only came a, a little bit, I think, more than 10 years after that. And then once somebody had thought of it and put it down, it seemed like the most obvious thing in the world. Uh, yet it, it could have been done a decade earlier and it wasn't. And this feels like one of those things. Uh, I mean, there's lots of other technical examples I could give you like that, you know, like sort of nobody thought about it until just one day the light bulb went on. And then, you know, I just was like, oh, um, you know, the other thing I would say about it is I think people have thought about states' rights arguments in general as more tools for um, you know, the right, uh, for sort of advancing um, ideas that are opposed to civil rights, which makes sense, obviously, because there's been so much states' rights opposition to you know, race discrimination and gender discrimination and uh, fair labor standards and other ideas like that going back a long way. And so although I think there've been, there've been certainly strands of states' rights as pro-immigrants' rights ideas, here and there for a long time, including in-state tuition, which I think was 2001, if I, if I remember right, so it was very old, AB 540. The idea that immigrants' rights advocates would look deeply to states' rights ideas as a way to advance the cause is more recent. And then I think the last thing I would say is, this is not a solution, obviously, to the risk that DACA may end because many DACA holders are employed in the private market. And so, Yes, California, the, the, the UC, the third largest employer, but still there's huge, obviously, employment opportunities in the private market that would not be fixed by adopting this idea. And yet I think also, nonetheless, that the, the impending uh, potential demise of DACA did spur a lot of thinking. I and mean, that's actually how I, in particular, researched this exact question as I was in the transition to the Biden administration, had been asked to look at some potential administrative relief proposals that the Biden administration might put in place in the event that DACA goes down or the other things that could be done along those lines. And that was kind of what spurred me to be hunting through this, this particular area of law. 
it seems like this is consistent with a lot of other things that the state of California has been doing with undocumented people. We mentioned in-state tuition. You just mentioned California issues driver's licenses to all residents, regardless of immigration status. California also recently became the first state to offer state-funded health care to all low-income people, regardless of immigration status. So this is sort of part of that whole move that the legislature has made over, as you say, more than a decade. Um, and I, I would add one thing, um, John, to your list, which is occupational licenses have been open, um, I believe, either all or virtually all to people regardless of immigration status. So you can be a lawyer, and there are. There are very good undocumented lawyers. You can be a doctor. You can be an accountant and all kinds of other jobs like that. The argument that you're making doesn't just apply to California. It applies to all states, all the other 49, doesn't it? You're right. There's there's nothing. If our theory is correct, then the law already, as currently written, leaves the question of who the state should hire to work for itself to the states. And so it means that states are already free to make their own judgments about who they should hire from everything from the highest government positions, where it makes a lot of sense from a federalism perspective. California gets to decide who should be a governor or who should be a judge or who should be, you know, certain other officials like that, state assembly uh, member. In our view, all the way right down, because of the way the statute is written, to who should be hired to be a research assistant in the University of California or California State University. In our view, yes, the same is true for every state in the union. Where do we stand on this proposal right now? I know it's been presented to the president. You say it was just presented to the regents. Have you gotten any response yet? Only that they're looking at it carefully. And I say that was a little bit of disappointment in my voice. So you say that 29 legal authorities all agreed with your reasoning here. Of course, there are some people who disagree with this interpretation of the law. And presumably, if the regents approve this, and if it goes into effect at the University of California, the opposition, let's call them Republicans, will take action. What are the next steps, assuming this is approved? I mean, I think it would be technically easy to change this law by amending IRCA and explicitly stating that it applies to state governments. And that's what happened with a number of canonical federal statutes, which now do apply to states, Title VII, uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act, the FMLA, the ADA, and lots of others. But to do that, I would hope that somebody uh, on the other side of Congress might say, sure, we, we can we can amend IRCA as soon as we pass the DREAM Act and the Promise Act and <laughs> fix the other thousand extremely irrational and uh, and also extremely harmful immigration policies that have no one has been able to fix you know through immigration legislation a very long time so my sense is that the 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 political quote unquote fix that would eliminate uh, the fixing of this proposal I would think would get thrown in the mix of so much of other federal immigration legislation which has obviously been stalled for the most part uh, going back a number of years. As far as litigation goes, and it might, because obviously many pro-immigrant policies, particularly those enacted by the Biden administration, have been the subject of, of lawsuits, uh, primarily by Republican-led states, is what I'm thinking of anyway. 
I would think it's hard for them to show that the UC hiring its own students somehow harms, say, the state of Texas in a way that would be sufficient to produce injury to satisfy the Article Three standing requirement. Um, even a very, very broad understanding, like those that they have adopted, and which the Supreme Court is now actually going to be considering next term in their challenge to the federal prosecutorial discretion guidelines um, in that litigation, even that very broad understanding, it doesn't seem to me stretches broadly enough to claim that somehow they'd be harmed by the UC hiring its own students or California in general, choosing to hire, you know, open open all of its jobs up to the best applicant, regardless of immigration status. I mean, why that would cause any kind of injury to Texas or some other state really would is a mystery to me. So my hope would be that it would be hard for such a litigation to go forward. Um, you know, as other litigation could potentially happen, you know, I, I really do believe we have the better argument, the much better argument, actually. Um, so I would hope that that if somehow somebody could get into court over this, which I do think would be a stretch, but if somebody somehow could do it, that hopefully a court would see it our way. The New York Times article on your argument quoted the director of border security for the Conservative Heritage Foundation. They said, work opportunity is the number one pull factor of illegal immigration, and that's why this is a bad idea. That's not exactly a legal argument. It really isn't. You know, I, I actually have not heard a careful legal analysis that answers the basic argument. I mean, that, yeah, obviously that's just a policy argument. And that's my point would be like, yeah, maybe some states think that they don't have to do it. But the states that see it another way, the states that like California think, well, you know, we've got 40,000 undocumented students in higher education uh, who are not eligible for DACA. And we think that that actually providing them uh, equal educational opportunities is a good thing. And if that causes uh, more people to come to California, that's great then they can work here and live with their families too. They can work here and live with their families. Ahilan Arulanantham, he's co-director of the Center for Immigration Law and Policy at UCLA. Ahilan, thanks for talking with us today. Great to talk to you, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The left has hated J. Edgar Hoover for a hundred years, ever since the Palmer raids of 1919, the attacks on radicals that began his career. Now there's a terrific new biography of Hoover that puts it all together from beginning to end with a lot of stunning new information. It's called G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. The author is Beverly Gage. She teaches history at Yale. She writes frequently for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the New Yorker. Beverly Gage, welcome to the program. It's great to be here, John. We know a lot about the bad things Hoover did, wiretapping Martin Luther King and then trying to blackmail him into committing suicide right before he was to receive the Nobel Peace Prize, and COINTELPRO, the secret campaign to disrupt the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, the black power movement. But your book reminds us that Hoover also did some things that were not bad. So let's be fair and remind us what's on your list. 
Well, it is true that the book tries to take a, a pretty balanced view of Hoover, which actually isn't that hard to do when you have someone who has been so villainized for so long. <laughs> Even acknowledging a handful of good things um, puts you uh, puts you somewhere in the uh, the revisionist camp. Um, but I would say that most of the quote unquote good things that Hoover did in his life came out of a tradition of kind of professional government service that he learned during the progressive era when he was a young man. He believed in the power of the state. He believed in the power of expertise. And so there are lots of moments where he is actually acting as almost a civil libertarian. He opposed Japanese mass incarceration and internment during the Second World War, which was not a popular view in, <laughs> in even the Roosevelt administration. There are some great moments in the book where he stands up to Richard Nixon, and Richard Nixon thinks that uh, Hoover has become some sort of civil libertarian. Um, and then there are just some moments where the FBI actually delivers on what it's supposed to deliver on, which is solving crimes and uh, enforcing the law. Yeah, for example, in 1964, uh, he helped prosecute the Klan killers of the Mississippi Freedom Summer Volunteers, Mickey Schwerner, James Goodman, and Andrew Cheney. So I want to talk for a minute more about Hoover and Nixon. One of the good things that he did was refuse Nixon's request to go after Daniel Ellsberg after the release of the Pentagon Papers. So what exactly did Nixon want? This is 1969, 1970, and why did Hoover refuse? Nixon wanted it's the FBI didn't refuse altogether uh, to investigate. They were kind of looking into things, but Nixon wanted a much more aggressive campaign. And Hoover held back for a couple of reasons. One is that in 1969 and 70, Nixon and Henry Kissinger had already asked Hoover to uh, wiretap White House staffers, members of the press who were suspected of leaking. And Hoover went along with it. He did it, but he wasn't sure it was going to be a very very good idea. And he was really worried about what would happen if it came out, particularly the wiretapping of members of the press. So he's already cautious about those things. He often uh, said that he was friendly with Daniel Ellsberg's father-in-law as well. So there was a personal side to this story. And Hoover was just growing a little bit more cautious in his old age. And I think a little bit more aware of just how combustible and controversial it would be in the end. And rightly so, you know, he said, we got to really hold back. They're going to make Ellsberg into a martyr. And uh, Nixon, of course, didn't didn't listen to him. <laughs> so what did Nixon do when Hoover refused to go after Ellsberg the way Nixon wanted him to? Yeah, it's one of the moments where Nixon says, okay, if the FBI isn't going to do exactly what I want, I'm going to have my own team. Um, and this is one of the origins of the plumbers and the plumbers themselves, who were sort of Nixon's dirty trick squad. Um, they had members of the FBI, former agents and others who had been trained by Hoover, uh, but who were now willing to do Nixon's bidding a little bit more directly. And that plumber's thing, as I recall, didn't work out that well for Nixon. Yeah, you know, he, he might have seen that this stuff. Uh, he had listened to Edgar. Maybe it would have all been different. It's actually funny when you when you listen to the Nixon tapes. Um, Watergate happens right after Hoover's death. Uh, and a, a few years in, you you hear Nixon saying, if my old friend Edgar were still around, you know, it wouldn't all be collapsing around me like this. But before Hoover dies... 
just a year before he died came the event that damaged him more than anything else in his lifetime, the break-in at the FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, March 1971. Remind us what happened there. This is really a fantastic story, and it's been told tremendously well in a book by Betty Medsker called The Burglary, as well as a terrific documentary film called 1971 by Johanna Hamilton. Um, and it's an incredible story, first of all, because it's just a small band of activists in the Philadelphia area um, who in 1971 decide that they want to expose what the FBI has do been doing to the new left. Um, and so they break in to a very small regional office in Media, Pennsylvania, which actually happens to be right next to my hometown. So I felt a kind of good hometown connection to this story. Um, and they go in and they steal all of Hoover's files, all of the files that are in there. Um, and this really becomes the moment that uh, we get some a documentation of what almost everyone in the new left understood was happening, which was uh, FBI infiltration, surveillance um, of a wide range of activists. But the really great part of the story is that the FBI fails to catch them. And uh, so they they actually really got away with it and uh, came out and revealed themselves uh, about 10 years ago. Um, turns out a bunch of uh, good anti-war activists from the from the Philadelphia area. Later that year, after the media FBI burglary, the fall of 1971, Nixon decided it was time for Hoover to go. You say Nixon's advisors suggested various inducements he could offer Hoover, for example, they do a lot of very funny brainstorming about it. Um, like maybe we can bump him up to the Supreme Court. Yeah, that's maybe the one that can... really that's the one <laughs> that really got to me. Are you exactly. kidding? But the beautiful thing about that story is that Nixon actually brings Hoover in, tries to have this conversation, tries to make the case that the moment has come to step down. And uh, Hoover more or less refuses. He says, well, you know, Dick, if you insist and you order me to step down, you're the president. Obviously, I would have to do it, but I don't want to do it. And Nixon says, oh, OK, well, if you don't want to do it, nobody's <laughs> nobody's insisting on this. And why? Why didn't Nixon fire him when he decided? it was time for Hoover to go. This is one of the great questions of Hoover's career, and it's not just Nixon, right? Hoover was director of the FBI for 48 years. So he started under Calvin Coolidge, um, and he lasts under eight presidents, four of them Democrats, four of them Republicans. And so that's one of the big questions. How did he do it? And I think there are a combination of factors. So one that we wouldn't tend to think about today is the fact that even very late in life, uh, Hoover was pretty popular. And for most of his career, he was incredibly popular. He was one of the most popular, best respected public servants in America, certainly in the 1940s and 1950s. Um, by the time we get to the Nixon years, I think Nixon sees a couple of things going on. One is that he really based a lot of his 1968 campaign and that a lot of his domestic politics around a kind of Hoover-esque law and order message. And so he's been celebrating Hoover um, and he's nervous that law and order conservatives are going to be upset with him if he forces Hoover out. Hoover knows a lot of things about the Nixon administration as well from the secret wiretaps that he had planted uh, for them. And, uh, you know, there are great quotes um, from 
kind of the end of the first Nixon term in which Nixon says that he fears, you know, if they really try to ease Hoover out, that Hoover is this man who's going to bring down the temple around him, that he knows everything. And uh, it's just too, too dangerous. So Hoover died in office, May 1972. What did Nixon say when he heard the news? Nixon said that old c uh, <laughs> and he, uh, you know, it's an interesting moment because Nixon, I think, is very relieved when Hoover dies because it solves a problem that he's been trying to solve for a while, or at least he thinks it will solve his problem. Uh, but there also seems to be some real grief there. I mean, this is someone who had been in his life for 25 years. They had socialized together. They had been political allies. That phrase, that old c you could take it to be an expression of admiration, which you do in the book, but you could also take it as a reference to Hoover's homosexuality. So we need to talk about Hoover's relationship with Clyde Tolson. That relationship was not a secret, right? What did people know about Hoover and Tolson during his lifetime? This was the key relationship of Hoover's life, and Clyde Tolson was his second in command at the FBI for most of his career, really from the 1930s onward. Tolson became an agent in 1928. Um, and it is a funny combination of a very open and very public relationship, and then a very inaccessible and in some ways quite secretive relationship. The open part of it is that they worked very closely together at the FBI for four decades. Um, and so their private and public lives were really fused. Neither one of them married, and they were obviously each other's primary social partner. So uh, they traveled together, they double dated together, they went to nightclubs together and the racetrack together. And everyone in Washington, in New York, in LA, the places they hung out, knew to treat them as a couple. And they were a very widely accepted social couple. Now, whether you could then describe them as a gay couple is a slightly different question. So certainly they pushed back against that. Your evidence on uh, this relationship includes Hoover's private vacation photos. These are remarkable documents, and we salute you for publishing these in the book. Tell us about them and what you make of them. Yeah, Hoover left behind these amazing photo albums, and they are his personal photo albums. And certainly in the 30s and 40s, especially, a lot of what's there are very, very intimate photos of his vacations with Tolson. Um, the ones that I published are my favorites, but <laughs> there are dozens and dozens of these that you could choose from. And a lot of them are really very intimate shots uh, in back bathrobes, in uh, bathing suits, out on the beach, kind of private moments of gazing at each other, them with their arms thrown around each other uh, in a sort of friendly way, more than a romantic way necessarily. But uh, what really struck me about those is, on the one hand, just their, their, their genuine intimacy, which you can really see and feel in them, and then the sheer number of them. What did Bobby Kennedy call Hoover and Tolson? Bobby Kennedy was not super nice to them or big fans of them, and he used to refer to them as J. Edna and Clyde. <laughs> Man. 
I also was amazed to see that starting in 1962, the Manachine Society, the first gay organization, started inviting him to their events. That was a great file to come across. <laughs> so the, the local Mattachine Society in Washington, D.C. is clearly having some fun with the FBI, you know, and at a moment when it required actually a lot of bravery and confidence uh, to do that. But they start putting Hoover on their mailing list, inviting him to such events as, you know, the homosexual in America, a lecture for uh, those who might want to be informed. And Hoover gets very worked up about this. He gets <laughs> them called into the FBI and they say, well, we'll take you off our list if you'll take us off of yours. <laughs> great, great story. So now back to the beginning, young J. Edgar Hoover went to college at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. and joined a fraternity called Kappa Alpha. This is one of my favorite parts of your book. Tell us about Kappa Alpha. Kappa Alpha is really a fascinating institution and one that I didn't know much about when I started writing about Hoover. The National Kappa Alpha had been formed in 1865, uh, key year, end of the Civil War, to honor the memory and the lost cause of Robert E. Lee. And so throughout the late 19th and into the early 20th century, they're a really key institution uh, for white Southern men, uh, particularly very prominent white Southern political men, and two of the biggest figures in the fraternity at the moment that Hoover joined were John Temple Graves, who was uh, a segregationist, pro-lynching Southern editor, very famous figure, a great champion of the Atlanta race riot, and not in the ways one might want. Uh, and the other was Thomas Dixon, who was the author of The Klansman, which is the film that became the birth of a nation. And they're really the two standard bearers of the fraternity on a cultural level. And then you've got all these Southern Democrats who were actively engaged in uh, creating segregation in the early 20th century. They're all kind of in the alumni chapters around D.C. And I think this is a lot of where Hoover gets both his racial um, and to some degree his political education is, is in his fraternity. And Kappa Alpha, I learned from Google, is still going strong. They have chapters at 122 schools. We record our program in Los Angeles, and there's a chapter of Kappa Alpha at USC. And it was in the news just the last year. It was one of six fraternities that refused to accept the university's new rules on preventing sexual assault at frat parties. Kappa Alpha, still going strong. Well, we have to talk about Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Their execution in 1953 for stealing the secret of the atom bomb and giving it to the Russians was one of Hoover's highest profile projects. But now we know that the FBI basically went after the wrong guy. The Russians did get American atomic secrets, but not from Julius and Ethel. They got them from real nuclear scientists, first of all, Klaus Fuchs, who was caught by the Brits, and then from a brilliant young American physicist named Ted Hall. Ted Hall was identified in the Venona decrypts that the FBI had as a key Soviet spy at Los Alamos. The FBI investigated Ted Hall for spying, but they never arrested him, and he went on to live a long and happy life as a scientist. There's a book about uh, his life. It's called Bombshell, The Secret Story of America's Unknown Atomic Spy Conspiracy by Joseph Albright and Marcia Kunstel. 
Uh, and at the same time we learned about Ted Hall, we also learned that David Greenglass, who was the FBI's key witness against the Rosenbergs, the brother of Ethel, admitted that he had lied about her in the trial, that she had not typed the documents Julius gave to the Soviets. And so his lies sent her to the electric chair. That story was told in an interview by Sam Roberts at the New York Times in 1996. And he later wrote a book about it called The Brother. That book had one unforgettable sentence. William P. Rogers, who was Deputy Attorney General at the time of the execution and later Secretary of State under Nixon, admitted to Sam Roberts of the New York Times that the government's objective was never to kill the Rosenbergs, but to get them to confess. And he said of Ethel, quote, she called our bluff. She called our bluff. So Julius was a spy, but he didn't give the secret of the A-bomb to the Russians. Ethel was framed by the FBI and her brother. The real spy was never prosecuted. My question for you is, why did Hoover decide to go after the Rosenbergs instead of Ted Hall? Well, the Venona Project is a really interesting and somewhat complicated story. So on the one hand, uh, these are decrypts that the army gets during the war. Um, they begin after the war to collaborate with the FBI in trying to sort out what is in these Soviet communications. Um, and they find that a lot of them have to do with, uh, with intelligence and espionage. And so beginning in the late 40s, they work together. Um, Venona leads them, in fact, to a, a pretty substantial number of people, including Julius Rosenberg. Um, it leads them to far more people, as you suggest, than they're actually able to prosecute. Um, and that's partly because their number one goal with Venona is to keep its existence secret. So they're able to go after Julius Rosenberg because they have a witness who is willing to testify, right? So because you have David and then Ruth Greenglass, uh, you're able to actually do something in court. And during the entire Rosenberg case, the existence of Venona is not known, though people, uh, people do have a sense that there's something that the FBI knows that they're holding back. And in fact, they're right about that. But on the other hand, because you want to keep this secret, if you can't find a witness and you can't find material evidence, you can know to a great degree of certainty that someone like Ted Hall has been engaged in atomic espionage, but you know, if you're prioritizing secrecy, uh, you're not going to go after him. And that was the decision that the, the FBI, the Justice Department, and the Army made together. You know, when they went after the Rosenbergs, as you say, the hope really was that the Rosenbergs would then flip and talk about other people, and they would kind of keep following this chain down the line um, and be able to uh, to go further. But the Rosenbergs do, in some sense, really, really stop it. And while Hoover was failing to get Julius and Ethel to cooperate, he was giving those most top secret counter-espionage documents, the Venona decrypts, to the top British intelligence official in the United States, Kim Philby, who was soon shown to be a Soviet spy. How devastating was that for Hoover? It was pretty bad. That wasn't a great moment, right? So Kim Philby is this kind of illustrious 
a British counterintelligence person who gets sent over to be the, the liaison to the FBI and the CIA uh, in the very late 1940s, but of course turns out to have been a, a Soviet spy the entire time he's working for the British. So that was pretty devastating to uh, to American intelligence, the FBI and the, and the CIA both. And what did the CIA conclude about this whole episode with giving the Venona secrets to uh, Kim Philby? Yeah, one CIA official says something pretty devastating, which is that uh, the FBI and the CIA would have been better off doing nothing about Soviet espionage in the 40s and 50s, rather than uh, engaging in what they did and handing it all over, in essence, to Kim Philby and the Soviets. So um, you've said how popular J. Edgar Hoover was at the peak of his career, you have this uh, startling uh, opinion poll in 1964 after uh, Hoover denounced Martin Luther King as America's most notorious liar. How did that go over with the public? This is a really famous moment. It's still a point of reference today, uh, the moment that Hoover really publicly goes after King and calls him the most notorious liar. Uh, and today, of course, we think evil J. Edgar Hoover, nobody would support that, you know, kind of sainted Martin Luther King. But at the time, that is not at all how the politics played out. So in a, in a poll conducted in that moment, full 50% of Americans say that they support Hoover, 16% say they're on King's side, and then a whole bunch of people say uh, they don't really know which side to be on. And what's interesting to me about that poll is that it suggests you know, that some of our more comforting national narratives uh, should be rethought a little bit, because that's actually what the politics of the 60s looked like. So you conclude your story of J. Edgar Hoover, that this is a story about America in the 20th century, what we tolerated and what we refused to see. Right. Part of the goal in this book is not just to have it be about this very, very interesting uh, and long-lived and influential man named J. Edgar Hoover, but really to tell a story about the growth of American government, particularly of the security state over the course of the 20th century, and to tell a story about Washington and national politics itself. Um, and I think that Hoover conceived of himself as being a person who really policed the limits of American democracy and decided what was going to be legitimate speech and what was going to be illegitimate speech. And he did a lot of that in secret. And so I think today, there's something really to be contended with about the idea, first of all, that Hoover was as popular as he was. We tend to think, oh, he was a rogue actor, and therefore, had people only known what he was up to, surely they would have rejected it. But he was pretty open about a lot of what he was doing, and in fact, had very deep and widespread support. And I think that tells us something different about our story of the 20th century than we might like to think. Uh, and then the piece that was secret, which was uh, some of the details of his secret apparatus um, also ought to lead us to, you know, think really seriously about the kind of security state that was built um, out of the pressures of the 20th century, the ways in which it has contained political possibility and political speech over the course of the 20th century. Um, and we should think about how much of that we want in our own lives today. The book is G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. 
In The New Yorker, Margaret Talbot called it crisply written, prodigiously researched, and frequently astonishing. The author is Beverly Gage. Bev, thanks for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about the fight against air pollution in the port communities of Los Angeles, where 300,000 people, mostly Latino, live next door to oil refineries, chemical facilities, and one of the largest oil fields in the nation. For decades, they've been fighting for basic rights and a cleaner environment. Eliza Moreno has that story. She's a writer on race, gender, and environmental issues who earned a BA from Duke and an MA from Stanford. Her new piece for thenation.com is These Moms Are Leading the Fight Against Environmental Racism. We reached her today in Los Angeles. Eliza Moreno, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, John. Well, you open your report for the nation with a story about an explosion in a South Bay neighborhood of Los Angeles in 1969. Tell us about that. Jesse Marquez, he was just a teenager when this explosion impacted him and his family. At the time, he was living in Carson, neighbor to Wilmington, California. Four tanks of oil in the Fletcher Oil and Refinery plant had exploded, and it was stationed right across from Jesse's family home. The explosion resulted in first, second, and third degree burns. Due to this explosion, Jesse realized the importance of advocating for his community. He moved to Wilmington later on in his life and founded the organization Coalition for a Safe Environment and has served as its executive director since founding it. And tell us a little more about Coalition for a Safe Environment, uh, what their work has been. The organization works to hold oil refineries and other institutions accountable, those that are um, directly impacting the health and the lives of those in the neighborhood of Wilmington. The Coalition for a Safe Environment does a lot of work, but which involves making sure that the Assembly Bill AB 617, um, which is the most recent and major bill signed by Governor Brown in 2017. And so the purpose of AB 617 is to reduce exposure in communities most impacted by air pollution. And in 2018, the Wilmington Carson West Long Beach community was nominated by the district and selected as a monitoring community. Jesse is appointed to this AB 617 advisory committee. And so his organization ensures that they are keeping in mind all those most impacted. So how come people live next door to oil fields and oil refineries in LA County? What, what is the history of this? So in terms of the history of big oil in Wilmington and the LA area, it all began in the early 1900s. It was you know, largely to this big oil that spurred a lot of economic growth in the region. Um, and so the Chevron El Segundo refinery has been in that area since 1911, for example. Um, and Union Oil opened its first refinery in Wilmington specifically in 1919. And so just throughout 
um, the 1900s due to big oil impacting economic growth, people followed. And as a result, these communities have been building. But over time, due to the health impacts, the majority of the folks who are living in the area, a very inexpensive area to live in compared to West LA counterparts, are Latino and immigrant families who can only afford living in these areas. Um, And I spoke with members of the community, um, including Dulce, who is highlighted in the piece, as well as her daughter. And um, Dulce plans on staying in Wilmington. This for her is her dream is to continue to advocate for her neighbors and for her family and for herself. Whereas her daughter, who has two daughters of her own, her dream is to leave the area once she and her family have the economic means to. So let's talk here about the the health issues of people who live in these uh, neighborhoods uh, across the street from uh, oil refineries and oil storage uh, depots. This is sort of right behind the ports of LA and Long Beach, which bring in basically everything from China that comes to the United States, comes to the port of LA and Long Beach. And as a result, lots of pollution builds up and is directly impacting the folks who reside in these areas. There's this crisis of asthma cases in this area, especially the children in the area. Asthma rates are especially high in communities of color. And this is also the case for the predominantly Latino communities in Wilmington. On top of asthma impacting Um, So many children in the region. Research also suggests there is a correlation between pollution and eczema because the toxic chemicals in the air trigger eczema, damaging the skin. And so the children of Dulce, um, Freddie being one of them, he is impacted greatly by eczema as well as Dulce's granddaughter herself. I will add on top of all of these health issues, Latinos are greatly uninsured compared to their white counterparts. For example, um, 20% of Latinos nationwide are considered to be uninsured. And this lack of health insurance results in these communities being unwilling to go to the doctor for checkups, you know, including cancer screenings, which are actually highly recommended for those who live even within 30 miles of the region. And Dulce lives within one mile of an oil refinery. So because she does not have health insurance in the U.S., she relies on her family in Mexico to bring her the medication to help with the eczema for her children. So the air pollution comes from the oil refineries, it comes from the huge number of trucks that are going back and forth to the harbor, and it also comes from the ships that are in the harbor. I did not know until I read your article in The Nation that Governor Gavin Newsom had canceled the requirement that ships in LA Harbor use shore power when they're in the harbor. That means electricity instead of running their diesel engines. In September 2020, Gavin Newsom canceled that requirement. Tell us about that. Why did he do it? Governor Newsom halted the order intending to free up electricity in California because the state was experiencing extreme heat and raging wildfires. And so in order to prevent you know, further blackouts 
or electricity shortages due to the electricity that we as residents use up. In addition to the wildfires, of course, um, the order was intended to um, free up the electricity. This resulted in cargo ships to stop using shore power. And shore power is meant to reduce pollution. Ships are one of the heaviest polluters in the seaborne trade, counting for about half of all port-related pollution. And little is known of this order in other coastal California cities, but for residents in Wilmington, halting shore power results in even a greater amount of pollution directly impacting these residents. So we've talked a lot about the health problems. Let's talk about the organizations now that have been fighting to change this situation. I was especially interested that in Wilmington, there's a chapter of Communities for a Better Environment, CBE, which is a very big and important uh, nonprofit that fights for in, in, environmental justice. Uh, tell us a little about CBE in their Wilmington chapter and this fascinating person you profiled in the nation, Alicia Rivera. Communities for a Better Environment, specifically their chapter in Wilmington, is intended to support the fight for environmental justice. I spoke with Alicia Rivera, who is a Wilmington community organizer at this organization. This means that she is out on the streets, she's in the schools, she's in the churches of Wilmington, talking, leafleting, trying to speak to as many residents as she can, um, informing them about these refinery issues, inviting them to meetings. In fact, Communities for a Better Environment was the organization that informed Dulce about these issues. And thus Dulce is now an advocate in her own right as a community member. So just to give you an example of the breadth of Communities for a Better Environment and the impact they're directly having on their residents. And I spoke with Alicia who mentioned that in her conversations with um, residents, they do have an idea that the oil refineries that sit right next to their homes, they do have an impact on their health. And um, I understand that the local organizers told you that uh, they've had opposition, not just from the refineries, but from the YMCA, the Boys and Girls Club, even the local Catholic churches and local schools have not really welcomed the organizers uh, and and their their work. Why is that? These are low-resourced communities, and they do not have the resources to continue a lot of the work that they're hoping to push forward. And so this is when the funding from the refineries comes in. And so the refineries are well aware of the impact that they're having on the community. Um a lot of detrimental health impacts. However, in order to continue their operations without too much controversy or frustration by the community, the refineries provide a lot of funding to these schools, to these libraries, and to the churches. They donate money to the reading programs in the library alongside other community events. And so the libraries and the schools, even the churches, are placed in a very difficult position where they require the funding 
from the refineries in order to do the work that they want to do for the community, right? Um, in order to hold these community events and these reading programs for the children in the region. But in order to do so, this means that they will have to turn away organizers like Alicia because it's part of this unspoken contract they have with these refineries. I noticed that Alicia Rivera told you that the people who attend the meetings are all mothers. That's right. This could be for many reasons. One of them being that in these communities, traditional displays of gender are enacted, which is men are primarily the breadwinners and the mothers are the ones who work the odd jobs here and there and have the time and space to volunteer. However, I think it also has to do with the fact that these mothers are directly responsible for taking care of the children in their household, for their husbands, for themselves. They are the ones who are taking care of the health of their family. They are the ones who are directly witnessing the impacts that these refineries are causing in the bodies of their children and themselves. And so they want to take action. They are being placed in a position where they must be advocates, not because they want to, but because they have to. And so they want to know what's going on in their community. They want to know why it is that their children have eczema or asthma, and they want to do what they can to fight for a better life for their family. Eliza Moreno, she wrote about people in California's low-income communities of color organizing to prevent and reduce air pollution, especially around the ports of L.A. and Long Beach. You can read her report, These Moms Are Leading the Fight Against Environmental Racism, at thenation.com. And this piece was co-produced in collaboration with The Margin. Eliza, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music